Today we're taking a break from our series uh, in the book of Romans that we have been in for about four months now. We're going to return back to our series in Romans, uh, a a first century faith for the 21st century. We're going to turn back to that series in February. Uh, We're going to spend a couple of uh, weeks Today and next week, uh, speaking about some very specific um, things I think the Lord has for us. We're going to be having some Advent messages in February. We're, I'm sorry, in January, we're going to have a mini series on um, a, the biblical family, and so that'll be a series on uh, the family informed by the Bible. And so we're really looking forward to that. And then we're going to have a retreat. It's just going to be fantastic next couple months. Today, we're going to look at this topic. We're going to look at the topic of the anger of man and the righteousness of God. That's James chapter 1, verse 20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, we're not going to be talking about the epistle of James, but just really that theme of the anger of man, the righteousness of God. Uh, during this sermon, I, I really I prayed about this. I've thought about this sermon for quite some time, and um, I really believe that this is a message that uh, God has specifically for us at this particular time. Um, I think that what we're going to talk about today is applicable in my life, certainly in my life. It's applicable in my marriage. It's ac- uh, uh, it applies to um, the life of my children uh, as they relate to one another, how Lorraine and I parent our children. It relates to all of that. It also relates to you guys as well as, um, as a, your pastor, your lead pastor here. Um, there are certain themes that I've kind of noticed over a period of time that I think that uh, would be good for us to focus on God's Word in this area. It also focuses on um, a topic of, of anger and wrath and malice in our society. And so what we go through today is not directed at any one person. Okay, you may feel like, oh, he's speaking directly to me, and what, what is this, what is he doing, calling me out? <laughs> I can guarantee you that, um, I'll make you two guarantees. Number one is that I'm not speaking to any one person. I'm probably speaking to whole groups of people. And number two, I think every one of us is going to find something in this sermon today. Um, What you're going to find in the next 40, 45 minutes or so is going to be more helpful for you than meditation for 30 days, 30 minutes a day. It's going to be more helpful than that. It's going to be more helpful to you than taking a whole course on anger management that your workplace offers you. It's going to be more helpful for you than going on the best vacation you've ever had. And the reason why is because we're going to look at God's word today. And I think God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart, lay it bare, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. And so uh, I think as we interact with God's word, God's word is going to speak to you. It's going to affirm areas in your life that uh, you're doing really well in. It's going to convict you in areas that you're like, yeah, you know, that's me, Lord. And hopefully it will give you a a sense of hope that the Lord is here to forgive, to sanctify, and he desires his people not to be an angry people, but to be a peaceful people, to be a people that are peacemakers. Can we all agree upon that at the beginning, that God's will 
for our lives, personally, in our marriages, with our children, children to children, brother and sister to Christ, brother and sister in Christ, as we witness to an unbelieving world, that God's will in all of that is that our witness to each other, to an unbelieving world, and our service unto the Lord is that we are committed to not being known as an angry people. We are committed to being known as a peaceful people. We are committed to being a people that are peacemakers. Can we all agree upon that to begin with? We should, because that's where we're going. So what I want to do today is, um, you know, this is kind of one part sermon. It's one part kind of counseling time. And it's one part ministry time. So it's kind of all three together. We're going to look at a lot of verses. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to separate this into six different sections. First, we're going to talk, I'm just going to share some observations about anger, some general observations about anger in the life of uh, a Christian specifically. Second, we're going to look at the role of God and Satan in our anger. Third, we are going to talk briefly about righteous anger, that all of us should have a sense of righteous anger over the things that anger God. Fourth, we're going to talk about um, that we can sometimes be the culprit to incite other people to anger. Are we inciting other people to anger, causing them to be uh, tempted to be angry because of our actions? Number five, we're going to talk about various proverbs in terms of wisdom and dealing with anger. And number six, we're going to end with um, some scriptures to talk about repairing the damage that has been done to your soul or to the others through you because of sinful anger. Repairing the damage that has been done because of sinful anger. Okay, so a lot of ground to cover. We're going to go through it fairly rapidly. Um, let me pray for our time together and we'll just jump right in. Father, as we um, are gathered here, it is our commitment this afternoon that uh, we declare before you our commitment is to be a peaceful, peacemaking people. We renounce the ways of the old man and the old woman that are filled with malice, wrath, anger, envy, jealousy. And we want to be a people that replace that, Lord, with a commitment to being kind and compassionate and forgiving one another as Christ Jesus has forgiven us, Ephesians 4. And so, Lord, help us during this time. May your words speak to us to uncover the dark areas of our hearts. Maybe that we aren't willing to to acknowledge, or even not even aware of until this moment, and to replace that with the righteousness of God. Lord, that is our prayer, and we pray this in the peace of Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's go to the first. We're going to talk about some observations about anger. These are some just some general observations. Um, what is at stake in this sermon, in this topic, is how can we live... A more, and have a more peaceful marriage, have more peaceful children, have a more peaceful church. How can, as a result of that, our health not suffer from harboring deep anger and resentment? There's an effect on your health. How can we have more peaceful friendships? How can we properly view ourselves where we're not too hard on ourselves on one hand, but at the same time, we're willing to turn from ways that we need to embrace God in? And so in James chapter 1, verse 20, 20, James 1, 20 says, The anger of man 
does not produce the righteousness of God. That is our goal. Um, So observation number one is you have more self-control over your anger than you're probably willing to admit. You have more ability to have self-control over your anger than you're probably willing to admit. I remember I was listening to a pastor about 10 years ago. Lorraine and I went to a marriage, um, actually longer, maybe 15 years ago, went to a marriage conference, and uh, this one pastor was talking about anger in marriage. I don't remember a thing he said about the sermon, but I did remember this 30-second thing that he said. He said, uh, you have more control over your anger. I'll prove it to you. And he said, have you ever been really upset and you're in an argument with someone or you're, you're just like talking to yourself? You're really upset and you feel like this anger welling up, almost out of control. Maybe the, there's a, a big shouting match going on and then somebody calls. Someone knocks on the door. Hi, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I'm good. How are you? Oh, yeah, no, we're, we're good. We're good here. Yeah, no, no problem. How, how are you? You know, and you immediately switch. When you know that other people are watching outside of your family, you immediately are able to turn on that calm voice, right? And he said, don't tell me that you can't control it. You can control it. Can we all agree we've had that experience? Yes, we have. I have. So I think the first observation is to acknowledge we have, we have to take more responsibility and not say, God, will you help me control my anger? God, will you pray? Lord, it's such a struggle. No, and God's saying really back to us, no, you have the self-control already. You're just not owning up to it enough. I think we have to be honest on that. Number two is, observation is, uh, I've noticed that uh, there's kind of this pattern of how anger plays out. And uh, I'm Asian. I'll talk about my people. Not, not everyone's Asian, okay? But I think you can relate to it, if, even if you're not Asian, right? And I think that anger plays itself out a lot of times in this following way. Step one. I'm angry at you because you have shamed me. You have disrespected me. I have lost face. I have lost face in in front of other people. And so now I'm really angry with you because of shame and disrespect. Okay, well, you know, that might be valid too. But that really cuts to the core, right? When you get shamed or disrespected. Step one. Step two. I, if I don't, if I don't directly say something to you, I will passively aggressively express that to you. Okay? I may not confront you directly, but I'll ignore you. I'll give you the cold shoulder. I will find some other way to express my aggression to you that may not be like you know fists up or I'm going to yell directly at you, but I'll find another way to express that aggression in maybe a more passive way. Step three. And so I hold it in for this long time, and then suddenly, after a while, I can't take it anymore, and one day I just blow up at you. It's so like, uh, ah, and then it's like, whoa, what's going on? Well, it's this and this and this. And, like, and the other person's like, whoa, whoa. And we blow up. And we there, see, there, there wasn't a conversation before then, right? There wasn't like, hey, let's talk about it as it goes along sometimes. Sometimes, not everyone. Step four, I quit. I'm going to blow up. I'm out of here, man. I quit. I'm gone. And it's almost like this huge blow up. 
and then this destruction and this rubble, and it, there's like, where did that come from? Observation three. Um, you might be here, and uh, you look at your anger, uh, but you say, you know, I'm not really an angry person, Pastor Chris, because the reason how is how you define anger. See, we think of anger as if I'm yelling at you. That, well, that's angry. If I'm yelling, if I'm expressing physical violence, that's anger. If I have hatched a plan of revenge upon you and I'm you know, proceeding to go through that plan of revenge, well, that's anger. And I think sometimes we look at ourselves and say, well, if I'm not yelling, if I'm not using physical violence, and if I'm not doing this master plan of revenge, then I'm not an angry person. I'll tell you what I've come to realize um, in my own life, you guys. Because I would look at my own life that way. I say, you know, I, I don't yell that often, and I'm definitely not using physical violence, and I don't think I have this master plan of revenge on anyone, so I don't think, I'm, I, don't think I deal with anger issues. And here's what I learned, you guys. Um, there is this hidden undercurrent of anger in my life that wasn't yelling physical violence or revenge, but it looked like this. I had gotten into a pattern of expressing a lot of impatience with people. You know, you're not talking fast enough. You don't get, like, just, I, I become known as an impatient person or struggling with that. That's anger. Because you're really, you can call it prideful anger, whatever you want, but my impatience with people, and you can say, oh, well, we live in a time of, like, you know, uh, ADHD, uh, you know, fast media, it's all sound bites nowadays. No, it's in, impatience. And so I recognized that in my life. Secondly, I recognized, did I have the ability to receive correction? If someone calls me out on something. And you know, whether they're right or wrong, okay, you can debate that. The point is this. Are you a person that's teachable? Are you a person that's correctable? And that's hard, isn't it? Because if I'm not, if I'm like, no, you, if I'm turning to you and I say, I will only correct myself if I know you have 100% understood my entire view or you have agreed with my entire view I will keep arguing and if you try and correct me I will tell you that the reason why I am the way I am is because you are the way you are now again I know there's all these complex situations how that can play out but the general principle is am I able to receive correction Am I a teachable person or not? That's a form of anger, prideful anger. Um, am I showing off to make it look like I'm better than other people to hurt other people? That's a form of anger. Um, and so it's not just these outward manifestations that we can all agree upon. There's often an undercurrent. We have to look at about how anger manifests itself. And is that me? Fourth observation. Uh, there's all these you know, secular studies that prove this out over decades and decades, but it basically looks like this. Men and women tend to express anger differently. Men express anger in a confrontational way. Men can even express anger in a physical way. 
That's generally true about most men. They may not be physical, but they can be more confrontational. Most women don't love confrontation. And most women want to avoid confrontation. And probably for good reasons in some ways. But women, men, well, men tend to express aggression and anger through confrontation. Women tend to express aggression or anger through gossip, slander, innuendo, reputation destruction, and, or character assassination. And maybe not physically, but through words. And I think there's some truth to that. Because when you look at the Bible... When you look at 1 Timothy 3 and when you look at Titus 1, you can read it later, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, what you discover is in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, there are uh, qualifications for elders and women deaconesses. And the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 Listen to some of the qualifications of what you need to be as an elder, which is supposed to be a man of God that is following Christ and calling the congregation to follow him as he follows Christ. The qualifications for an elder are this. Be self-controlled. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not arrogant or quick-tempered. See, to be an elder, you cannot be known as an angry person. You can't be known as someone who's vengeful or violent, expressing that anger. For a woman, in 1 Timothy 3, as a deaconess or a wife of a deacon, it can be translated either one in 1 Timothy 3, listen to this. One of the qualifications for a woman deaconess or a wife of a deacon, depending on how you translate it, is this, that they're not slanderers. Men tend to express aggression physically or through confrontation. Women tend to express aggression through words. And that is why the Bible says in those passages that men should not be violent or quarrelsome and women should not be slanderers. Observations. Number two, let's go to this. God's role and Satan's role in our anger. God's role and Satan's role in our anger. I want you uh, to turn with me. We, I'm not, we didn't put the scriptures up here. I want you to actually turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21. It's a very familiar passage. Pastor Mike uh, preached on this a few weeks ago. But I want to uh, revisit this because I think it's important. God's role in anger. Uh, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. It's anger, right? Don't avenge yourself. Don't take revenge, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. That's the Lord speaking. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, or but overcome evil with good. Now there's a lot in there. Overcome evil with good. Don't let evil overcome you. He talks about um, blessing your enemy, serving, loving your enemy, so as not to torture them by putting coals on their head, but to sanctify them. That's what that really means in verse 20. But in verse 19, he says, don't avenge yourself. Leave it to the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. So one of the reasons that we get angry is we forget that the Lord sees the injustice. The Lord sees the sin against you. 
and he sees, he knows, and he will repay. The Lord will discipline, if that discipline the believer that's doing that to you, if it's a believer, and he will punish the unbeliever if it's an unbeliever. Either way, the principle is still the same. The Lord sees, and he will take care of the situation. What I realize about uh, anger and not trusting God, not trusting God to take care of a situation I felt was wrong or I uh, have something has been done bad to me. Um, again, I went through a long whole ordeal that many years ago. And, um, you know, I, I would have like guys like Nathan and Jay um, and now David pray for me, uh, kind of my pastoral support prayer group. We talk on the phone. And there was, over many years, it was, it was a long situation. It didn't have anything to do with my family or this church. It was an outside situation. Uh, about how, how, for the first half of that situation I was in, I was angry, okay? It was just thing after thing that was happening that was not my fault, that was out of my control, and it was just being thrust upon me. It was just like ruining my life, I felt. And I was angry. I was like, oh, this is so wrong. This is terrible. Who is this and that and that? And that was the first half. And I had this like light bulb moment when the light bulb went on about halfway through. And I realized, you know what? There, you can be angry when something evil happens to you, but you can't stay there because... If I stay there, what I'm really doing, follow me on this, you guys, what I'm really saying is I'm lacking faith in God. I am lacking trust in God that God sees, God knows, God will avenge if he so deems that. Book of Job, right? The life of Job, same thing. And I, once I recognize that, I was able to let go of my anger. Up until that point, I was like, you know what? Uh, this has to be known what's happening, and this has to be fixed, and this has to be stopped. And there, there can be a place for that. I'm not saying there's not. However, it should never supersede our position of faith. God, even if I don't receive justice, even if this is a, just a wrong that's just doesn't get resolved in this world, um, I'm not going to lack faith that you see, you know, and you're going to make it right in the end. And so that's what I learned. Uh, and my continued anger over a particular situation was in the end, as far as my responsibility, a lack of faith in God. Secondly, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. 26 and 27, verse chapter 4 of Ephesians. Uh, whereas Romans 12 is one of the ways God interacts with us, saying don't take vengeance. Uh, Ephesians 4 is the role of Satan now, through our anger. And yes, I believe there's an actual Satan. I believe there's an actual demonic realm. So verse 26 and 27, uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul says this, Be angry and do not sin. Let's stop there. Be angry, but don't sin. So there are things you can get angry about, but the issue is when it starts to turn into Seething anger, revenge, bitterness, wrath. Be angry, but don't sin. Verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know, some people take that literally like we're not going to, you know, if I'm married I'm, uh, to uh, my spouse and I'm not going to get go to bed angry. I know of certain couples who have a general commitment to one another that says we're not going to go to bed angry. 
Okay. I remember when we first got married, Lorraine and I, I told Lorraine, I said, uh, we're going to argue. It's inevitable, uh, inevitable. That's marriage. But let's make the commitment that uh, we're not going to we're not going to like leave and, and go off somewhere um, just as a way of uh, making the other person feel bad. You know, you can go for a walk around the block, but we're not just going to leave and come back the next day. OK. And so we've been able to do that. But he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to who? The devil. Satan works through our anger. Now, when it says the devil here, it's the reality is probably, you know, there's there's one Lucifer, one devil, one Satan, and he has this whole enormous multitude, this cohort of demons. Now, it's probably not realistic to think that the one satanic figure is focused on you out of the 8 billion people on this planet, but his demonic realm is. And when we get to a place where anger and we become an angry person, especially long-term, what you're doing is you're opening up a spiritual door in the spiritual realm that you cannot see that Satan or his demonic realm is using against you. Satan and his demonic realm love when you're in chaos. They rejoice in it. They love when there's broken relationships in your home or between a parent and a child or between a believer and another believer. They rejoice in that. And uh, it just goes downwards in more chaos. Um, Don't think that There's no such thing as spiritual warfare when your life is surrounded by anger. It's happening, okay? Now, it doesn't absolve you or an I from taking responsibility for anger. It doesn't do that. But do not be so naive to think that when there's strife and discord between believers, that there is no influence of the demonic realm at all at work or coming uh, if you stay there long term that's not what the scripture teaches it says if you don't let the sun go down on your anger if you if you keep holding on to it, you're giving opportunity to the devil yes. so we want to be careful about that right there's a spiritual side to anger with god and satan so we want to remember that number three there is a place for righteous anger in your life. There's a place for righteous anger. What are we talking about when we say righteous anger? John chapter 2, Romans 7, Galatians 2. Some of those passages are longer. You can read it later. I'll summarize it here. Righteous anger is the anger that you have that's not sinful. It's actually righteous. God gets angry about certain things when his name is not glorified, when his law is broken, when we live in sin, when we idolize other, you know, idols, false idols, God gets angry at that. You can see that all throughout the Old Testament, right? And in John chapter 2, you see that. You know the story. Jesus actually went into the temple twice and did the same thing. He cleansed the temple from the money changers. This is the first time he did it in John chapter 2. He sees these money changers that are at the temple on on the outer outskirts of it. And uh, the poor people were there for a festival that they had to come to and sacrifice animals, give animals as offering. They didn't have it because, you know, 
it's hard to travel from a long distance, 20, 30, 40, 80 miles. I don't know what it was from Galilee to Jerusalem. Is that 90 miles, something like that, to travel with an animal? So you just kind of come, and then you'd have to buy your animal there. Money changers would know that. So they'd take advantage of poor people, say, oh, you need a pigeon? I'm going to charge you four times as much as you would normally pay back in Galilee. Jesus saw that. He goes, you know what? You're turning my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of robbers, it says. And so he took a whip. Uh, he made a whip, a cord whip. He, and you can imagine, it's really, it's, it's dramatic. He's whipping the tables, breaking them out of righteous anger. The money changers disperse and says, the disciples remember, remembered later on from an Old Testament prophet that zeal for my house has consumed me. And they applied it to Jesus as a fulfillment of the prophecy. Point being, Jesus expressed righteous anger when God's house was being taken advantage of, when God's name was being defamed. Romans chapter 7, righteous anger. Uh, Paul goes through this chapter in Romans 7, and he says, uh, the things I wanted to do to honor God, I ended up not doing. And the things I didn't want to do, I ended up practicing And the law that was supposed to bring me life brought me death because it pointed out my sin. And he goes on to say in Romans 7, it's sin that dwelt in me, sin that sprang to life inside of me. And he ends Romans chapter 7 and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, wretched man that I am. He's expressing righteous anger. What? Not at God's temple and his house being defamed, but he's expressing righteous anger. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me this body? Because of his own sin. He was angry because he was like, There's, I'm, an, I'm an apostle. I, I met Jesus face to face, face to face, and yet I'm still doing the things I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do. I'm practicing those things. I'm mad at myself for that. And I'm, I'm not mad I'm going to beat myself down, go into a depression. I'm mad, and it's moving me, my righteous anger, follow me on this, to change. It's not righteous anger, you guys, unless you're willing to repent. It's not righteous anger unless you're willing to turn it over to Jesus Christ and trust in him. That's just anger at yourself. If, you know, I've, I've heard many people say to me over the years, Pastor, you, you, you can't ask much of me. You can't correct me much. And, and the reason why is because I already beat myself up so much. You don't know the internal dialogue that I have about how negative I am on my life and, and all this. So you don't, even, you don't even need to say anything to correct me, Pastor, because I already know all these things. I just need encouragement. Well, we all need encouragement, right? But... If you're in a place where you're constantly beating yourself up, that's just anger. See, what righteous anger is, is I'm upset at what happened to me, but I'm also upset at my role in whatever uh, I have to take responsibility for. And it moves me, this righteous anger, to embrace Christ, to repent, and to change. That's righteous anger. The other is worldly sorrow. It's not godly grief. And a third example in Galatians chapter 2 is, uh, again, summarizing Paul and Peter. uh, They're eating with different Jews and Gentile believers. And Peter would uh, be normally eating with Gentile believers. But as you know, Jewish law said only Jews eat with Jews. Jews are not supposed to eat with Gentiles. Galatians 2, Paul recounts a story where he saw Peter, who would normally eat with Gentile believers, 
But when these Jews came along, Peter said, oh, no, I'm, I, I, um, I'm ashamed of you. I'm not going to eat with you. I'll just eat with the Jewish believers. And I won't eat with the Gentile believers because of these other Jews that might judge me. And Paul called him out. And he said, you know what? That, what you're doing is you're ashamed of these other believers over here. And you're going with the elite believers over there. And that's hypocrisy because what you're doing is antithetical to the very gospel that you preach. And so he actually calls Peter out in front of everyone and says, what you're doing is wrong. That was righteous anger. See, when um, the body of Christ was being put down and it was a core gospel issue, uh, Paul expressed righteous anger to Peter. Now, that doesn't mean that you can look at every flaw of mine and just call me out in front of everyone like Paul did to Peter. That's not the point. The point is when it was a gospel issue, there was a righteous anger. When you look at this, we have to ask ourselves, and, and this is what I think, you guys. You can disagree with me on, on this if you want, but I really think this. I think that most believers, and perhaps many believers in our own church, need to be more righteously angry. You don't have enough of that. And you don't have enough to, to, to care enough to say, I care so much about the Lord that I will speak up about things that are coming against his name and the church. Um, one of the stories I write about in one of my books is I talk about um, when I was in downtown Long Beach, I went to two art galleries. And one art gallery, um, I walked in there. Um, you know, We had done this outreach to uh, a book club outreach, and one of the young women who started coming, uh, she worked at a museum in downtown Long Beach. And so she said, why don't you know, your church come over to the museum? It's like a free day uh, after the service. And so we said, you know, we're trying to reach out to this person, so let's all go over there to the museum afterwards. So we did that. And, you know, I was first time in the museum, so I was walking around there, and I was kind of in, at, at the front of the group, and I walked around this one corner, and I looked at this, it was an enormous painting. It was like the size of this screen, but, you know, longer. It was a painting of a crucifix of Jesus, but he didn't have any clothes on, no loincloth. And I'm not going to describe it to you, because I won't put that image in your mind, but it was such a mutilated painting that I took one look at it, my stomach turned, I turned to everyone else and said, we're leaving. This place is forsaken. Okay? I, I, not long after, I went to another art gallery in Bixby Knowles. And I went there and I saw this one painting that um, said, so-and-so, it had someone's name, cuts the uh, second coming of Christ short. And it was a painting about someone shooting Jesus in the head uh, upon his second coming, and Jesus being shot in the head. All right? I told a Christian leader in Long Beach about this, a very well-known Christian leader in my city about this. I said, hey, you know what? You are not going to believe what I saw. And I told him about what I saw. His response was this. He goes, ah, that stuff doesn't bother me. He goes, I see that kind of stuff all the time. I'm so just like uh, numb to it and stuff. And there was something about that comment that really bothered me. And, and I thought about it, I go, you know what? It bothers me because you should never get to that place where it doesn't bother you. And then I thought this, I go, you know what? He would not have said the same thing if I had gone and seen a painting of his daughter naked and mutilated at a museum. He would not have said the same thing if I saw a painting of his son being shot in the head. 
He would not be saying, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter. I've seen so much evil in this city. Doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm. No, he'd be outraged at that if his kids were on display in museums. Why don't we get, why, why wouldn't he be outraged of his Savior being mutilated in that way, right? Righteous anger. It's very important. Um, let's move on. Number four. We can also incite anger in other people. And this is something we don't often talk about. We, we, when we think about anger, we think about anger in our society. All these movies and television shows talk about how to take revenge on people. You know, the guy has been, his kid has been killed and he's going to hunt down the killers and do revenge. We talk about that kind of revenge uh, and anger. We talk about anger inside of us. But we need to also look at the idea of, are we the type of person that incites anger in other people? Are we the type of person that tempts others to become angry? You can't control other people. They have responsibility for their own actions and sins or whatever. But am I a type of person that incites others to be angry? And that's very, very important. Because you may not be an angry person, but you would find that other people become more argumentative around you. And we have to ask, am I inciting anger in other people? Um, Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs 22, verse 10. Proverbs 22, verse 10. We're only two Proverbs on this inciting anger. Um, Verse 10, it says this, of chapter 22. Drive out a scoffer and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. Drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. A scoffer is someone who's interpreting a situation in a negative way, and he's inciting anger in other people. He's like a sarcastic person that has a biting sense to their sarcasm. Okay, again, we are not talking right now about playful joking with the guys or you know just having fun with people and you're just like kind of uh, making fun of a person's sports team or whatever we're not whatever it is right that's not what we're talking about what we are talking about is someone who um in many ways you know like uh you think of like a, a calvin and hobbes right he's kind of like a scoffer a garfield you remember he's definitely a scoffer a marmaduke you know um a lot of these cartoons you know that uh we grew up watching as kids um certainly you know some of these cartoons like you can look at uh, simpsons um uh the family guy or south park you know all of that stuff scoffers right and any new example these are people who incite others to anger and it says in verse 10 to drive this person out because if you do strife quarreling and abuse will stop scoffer creates that kind of environment strife quarreling and abuse um i got news for you you may or may not see yourself as an angry person but If you or I am inciting, tempting other people to anger, you bear the greater guilt. And the reason why I know that is because Jesus says in Matthew 18, 
it's better if you took a millstone, this weight, put it around your neck, and you got thrown into the depth of the ocean. It'd be better for you to be that than for you to lead one of these little ones into sin. I.e., in other words, inciting others to anger. Inciting others in some ways is worse than being an angry person. And um, in Proverbs 26, verse 18 through 19, Proverbs 26, verse 18 through 19, another definition of inciting others to anger, Proverbs 26, verse 18 through 19, says this, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. A madman, firebrands, arrows, and death through my words or actions. And I'm deceiving you. And then I say, who, what, me? I, 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 that's not me. That's you. That's you. It's not me. I have no guilt here. I was only joking. In other words, it's not me at all. It's just you. And the reason why I am, to the extent, because I'm a madman, and if I'm throwing fires and arrows and, and death at you, the only reason why I'm like that is because of you. I'm only joking. I don't have any responsibility in this. The Bible says otherwise. It says you're a madman. If you can't take responsibility for your own um, actions of inciting others, then the judgment lies on you. And so we need to examine ourselves, right? And this is something that I've had to take a long, hard look at myself as well. Okay? Am I inciting anger in my spouse if my yes is not yes or my no is not no? Is this creating kind of this quiet resentment there? And it can be everything from I'm not doing the chores or whatever to whatever, you know, I, uh, a harsh word that was spoken but not apologized for, right? Um, no, I'm responsible, or my spouse is responsible. They're not responsible for our anger, but they're responsible for inciting. Number five, uh, I'm, what I want to do right now is I spoke at a college fellowship group a couple weeks ago down in Irvine, and um, I did this with them. I want to do this with you. You remember how I said at the beginning of the sermon, it's going to be one part sermon, one part counseling, one part ministry? This is the ministry part. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you these five Proverbs, and I'm going to ask you, I just want you to close your eyes right now. I'm going to read each one of these five Proverbs. I want you to listen to God's Word speak to you. I'll probably read it once or twice. I might ask you a question, and I want you to let God's Word speak to you and minister to you. These are five Proverbs that have, are about wisdom in dealing with anger. Wisdom in dealing with anger. And so uh, let's do that now, okay? I want you to just, you know, put your pencils down um, and close your eyes. I want you to listen solely to my voice as I read the Word of God to you. And for those of you that need a nap, this is your opportunity. (laughs) Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16. The first verse, to help us have wisdom in dealing with anger. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. The vexation or the anger of a fool is known at once, but the prudent or the wise ignores an insult. 
How many of us have felt like a puppet to other people's insults? The scripture says if you're wise, you ignore at least the initial insult. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And when we feel ourselves getting angry, there's a difference, right, between a soft answer and a harsh word. Between something escalates or it's quenched. Number three, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. We need to ask ourselves, church, am I a peacemaker in my family? Other people are depending upon you to help be a peacemaker in their own wars. You can step in to be a peacemaker. And that's honoring to the Lord. Or even between you and another person, sometimes you need to take the initiative to initiate peace. Number four, Proverbs 22, verse 24 and 25. Proverbs 22, verse 24 and 25 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Am I making friendships with angry people, wrathful people? Bible says I'm going to learn their ways. I'm going to fall into their trap. Is my friendship through not just my relationships, but through the music I'm listening to, the movies I'm watching? They're angry people. I'm making friendship with an angry man. I'm being taught to be an angry person. Finally, Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool gives full vent to their anger. The flood of anger is going to come out, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Okay, let's come back together. Um, I highly encourage you. I, this is in our family devotions this week. We went over each one of these scriptures, I believe, on Wednesday morning with my family and my children. And I encourage you to uh, reread this with you, your friends, or your family. Number six, and finally for today, repairing the damage that is done by sinful anger. Repairing the damage that is done by sinful anger. Uh, we're going to look at several passages here, not in too much in depth, but I'm going to mention it. How do we repair the damage that has been done to us and to other people because of anger? Number one, we need to confess our sins to God and to others. We need to confess our sins to God 
and to others. First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your sins to one another. When it says one another, it's not talking about, talking about church confess your sins to an unbelieving world. It's talking about believer, if you have sinned against another believer, confess your sins to that believer. See, believers can forgive you. God can forgive you. But only God can forgive and cleanse you. First John 1. Um, one of the signs of spiritual maturity is when you, number one, take the initiative to, um, to come to another person and say, I've sinned against you. See, when we're caught and we're forced to, that's not necessarily spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is, I, when I recognize this has happened, I'll take the initiative to go up to that person, text, call, talk to them. And say, you know, I, I just have to say something. That what, what happened, um, for, as far as my part in it, what, this is what was not right. And I'm going to take the initiative to confess that to the Lord. It's not, you guys, it's not enough sometimes just to confess it to the Lord. It's important to confess it to the other believer too. Um, some, if, we, if we don't do that, sometimes it's just like we're talking to a wall when we think we're talking to God. Um, and part of the mark of a mature believer is when you're willing to take the initiative to say, I will take the initiative to confess my sin to you because it's the right thing to do. The mark of an immature believer is when they never take the initiative to do that. If you want to be a baby Christian the rest of your life, then never take the initiative to confess your sins to other believers when you need to. And you know when you need to. I, I think generally there's conviction to our heart. So part of the mark of a mature Christian it's when we take the initiative to confess our sins to another believer. And number two, part of the mark of a mature Christian is when we're willing to, um, when we've resolved in our mind that even if they don't confess their sin back to me, um, I will still consider what I did to be the right thing. Because that's the way it works. A lot of times you might confess your sin to another person. And if, you know what, if the Spirit is moving in their life, they'll say, you know what, you've spurred me on towards love and good deeds in your action. I'm going to confess this to you. A lot of times that happens, but you know what, not all the time. See, many times you will confess your sin and you'll be waiting. Okay, well, you know, what do you have to say to me? And they will not say anything. Or they'll just say, thank you for saying that. You know, I appreciate that. And I accept your apologies. I forgive you. And they take no responsibility for any part on their part, right? Um, and very rarely is it just one party. And see, part of the mark of a mature Christian is not just taking the initiative, but it is also to say um, a lot of times there needs to be a mutuality to it. And if your spouse is the only one always apologizing, if the parent is the only one apologizing, and the kid is never apologizing to the parent or asking forgiveness from the parent, if the other spouse is not asking for forgiveness or apologizing to the other spouse, it don't work that way with God. And it don't work that way in the church. You're fooling yourself. Okay? Now, you don't have to. You can, you can do whatever you want. It's your life. It's your marriage. It's your family. It's your whatever. But I am telling you, um, 
If you want to mature in the ways of Jesus Christ, if you actually care about this is a crucial part of the Christian faith. Learning to have the resolve, to take the initiative, to confess your sin, not just to God, but to those that you sinned against, and having the fortitude and the peace to know that even if they don't do that back to you, that you will still be committed that what you have done is the right thing because it is the right thing. And so with that said, uh, we'll move on to another one. Um, Confessing your sins to God and other, other believers. Secondly, how do we repair the damage done by sinful anger? This has to do with something called restitution. Restitution. Have any of you ever heard that word restitution? Okay, some of you. What restitution is this? There's a really great definition of this in Numbers chapter 5. I want you to turn there with me. This is a, probably one of the best definitions of restitution in the Old Testament. See, what happened in the Old Testament is, uh, to, just to summarize, okay, you had like a million people coming out of the Exodus, and they're wandering through this wilderness for like 40 years. They need all these laws, right? They've been under slavery in Egypt. Now they're free, and they, they have all these specific laws. And so God says in Numbers and Leviticus, and he says stuff like this. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. You'll be there, and you'll do something to your neighbor's animals, okay? Maybe you might do something, maybe it's not even intentional. You do something, and it causes your neighbor's ox to die, and it's your fault. And we might want to say, oh, I'm sorry, neighbor, what I did caused your ox to die, or caused your crops to die. My bad, I'm sorry. God says in, in, in the Torah, he says, no, that's not enough. Apologizing is not enough. Asking for forgiveness is not enough. What you have to do is really restitution. And what that meant was this. If I cause your ox to die or your crops to, you know, to, to, to lose your best crops of your, your yield, what I'm supposed to do is the following. I'm supposed to either give you money to replace your ox or give you one of my best oxen for you. Or if you're, you're the best yield of your crops have been lost because of me, I'm going to give you the best yield of my crops to make up for that. And not only that, see, that just gets you back to neutral. It's with restitution, I will not only replace your ox or your crops, but I will now give you 20% more than what you lost. So if you lost $100 and it was my fault, I am now going to give you $120 to show you that my commitment to you is not just to restore you back to neutral, but to better than where you were before you interacted with me. That is restitution. You can find that all over. Uh, you, you, you see these examples in um, Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Remember, Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector. He's in a tree. Jesus passes by. says, Zacchaeus, I want to stay at your house tonight. Zacchaeus is like this short man. He's not liked by the Jews because he's a tax collector working for the Roman Empire. Zacchaeus comes down from the tree. He takes Jesus to his home. He, he, he uh, comes to believe in Jesus. Zacchaeus realizes he's saved. This tax collector sinner, right? What's Zacchaeus' response in Luke Luke 19, he goes, and Jesus says, salvation has come to your house this day. And Zacchaeus says, thank you, Lord. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give up to half my money to the poor, number one. And secondly, he says in Luke 19, if I have defrauded anyone or taken advantage of them, I'm going to give them back four times what they lost by interacting with me. 
four times. That's restitution. That's in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. Part of repairing the damage, you guys, of anger, sinful anger in people's lives is asking yourself, have I been the culprit? And if I have, what would it look like for me to not just restore the situation of what they lost, but to make them even better? Because that is my sign of love, my sign of a commitment to a relationship, and my sign of saying the wrong that has been done to you, you will look at yourself after I've restored you, rightly so, in a better place than where you were. And I think we need to be that kind of people as Christians because um, people can often get angry when they've experienced loss because of you and you're just apologizing, but they still have to clean up the mess of your loss. And you don't do anything because, hey, God has forgiven you on the cross. You don't need to do anything. No, 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 no. He might forgive you, but that's not right. What is right is is restitution. You want to do it right. That's what right is. In God's eyes. And we don't do it grudgingly. We do it because salvation has come to our household like Zacchaeus, right? A um, couple more. Um, Proverbs 21, verse 15. Proverbs 21, verse 15. Repairing the damage done by sinful anger. Proverbs 21, verse 15 says this. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evil doers. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evil doers. What does that mean? Sometimes people can be angry because there's no justice that's been done. When justice happens, they are joyful. And the people who have done the injustice, they are fearful. In our family, uh, when I see that there's been an injustice done between one of my kids, um, I, I step in and I say, here's what justice means to correct the situation. And I generally, there's a time for your kids to work things out on their own. I'm not saying that there's not. But there is also a time when you step in as a parent and say, I'm going to make right what has gone wrong in this situation. And when there is, someone has been wronged in the family, you can see that they are joyful then. They, because they know that dad has not allowed injustice to reign in their family, and he's corrected the situation, and so they have joy because there has been, um, there has been justice. And the person who has done the injustice or the sin is like, oh man, dad got involved, well, I don't like this. And that's actually what you want. Same thing, uh, justice is done. And finally for today, thanks for hanging in there. The final passage is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. All right. Repairing the damage done by sinful anger, confessing our sins to God and others, restitution, being an agent of justice to help the righteous and being a terror to evildoers. And Hebrews chapter 10, we end with this, verse 24 and 25. The writer of Hebrews says this, and let us consider how to stir one another up, how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day of the day of Christ's return drawing near. Let's go back to verse 24. And let us consider how we may stir one another on to love and good works. 
repairing the damage done by anger happens when we take a posture of saying, I'm going to encourage you to love and good works. Ask yourself this. If you're in a family right now, um, or, or even you interact with you guys as friends, either way, um, there, are, there are critiques we can make about each other all day long. Right? Um, you can be in a family situation. Who, who forgot to do the chores? Um, you know, who, whose turn is it to, um, you know, to do this thing, to help out in the house? Who, who forgot something? Who made a mistake? Um, who was being annoying, according to me, right? And, um, or maybe I'm the one that's being annoying, right? And that can go on endlessly. And I think, what I, what I did is I turned to my family the other day and I said this. Okay, so here, here's the thing, you guys. Um, what spurring one another on towards love and good and deeds looks like is for every critique that we give one another, we should be giving twice as many encouragements, twice as many commendations, and twice as many, um, you know, good jobs as we are critiquing others in our household. You know, I have um, spent the last... Uh, season of my ministry uh, and I've been what I've been trying to do is to try and take every opportunity I can with you guys to just commend you or praise the good things that I see happening sometimes I'll just text someone the other day like uh, we were in Julian on Wednesday right and we were just having a family devotion at a restaurant me and my family and we were talking about being a peaceful person and we just had threw this question out at our family and said well, well who do we think is a peaceful person right and not to say that it's not you guys right but two of the people we came up with was um we talked about ali kamada and justin kenmatsu okay not to say you the rest of you guys are not right but and so as soon as we said that as a family we just I just texted, you know, Matt and Allie and Sheldon and Jocelyn. I said, hey, our family was just talking about this. Who's a peaceful person? We just, you got your two names immediately came to mind. And so I texted them as an encouragement, spurring one another on towards loving good deeds. What would this church look like? What would your family look like? What would you look like? What would I look like? If we generally had that rule, which says every, for every critique I'm going to give or every, like, I'm going to actually do twice the number of encouragements or com- commendations of because we people need to hear that, and I need to hear that too. As, as and the elders need to hear that, because I'm way past the point right now in my ministry career. I don't need you guys to come up to me and say good message, Pastor Chris, every single Sunday. Like I know by this time whether it's a good message or not, um, but at the same time, I appreciate the encouragement. Because a lot of times as pastors or leaders, we just hear the problems. But actually, you know, we're human beings too. And, you know, just like you, your kids need to hear it. Your spouse needs to hear it. Leaders need to hear it. And just as you want me to be that to you or the other elders to be that to you, it's important that that works and we all get built up in love and good works. That's how a church is supposed to work. Okay? And if you want to be lavish with your encouragement, lavish with your commendation. You're not glorifying man and not taking glory away. That's not what this is about but building one another up, okay? If we do that, um, anger will not be an issue in our lives to the degree it has been. Let's pray together. Father, as we close together, it is our commitment 
to be a peaceful people, to be a people that are peacemakers. And I pray that this church, the families, the singles, the children, would be known as people who spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Out of knowing that you are returning, you are returning as judge, you are returning as Savior, Lord. Any moment that can happen. And so, Father, I pray as we go forward, um, Satan would have no foothold in our lives here. But rather, we would have the faith to believe that uh, whatever is angering us, you see, you know, you will take care of in the end. May we be a peaceful people in how we speak to one another. Um, how we bring peace to situations, Lord. And uh, may we be wise in that. Thank you, God, for sanctifying our church as a peaceful and peace-loving church. In Jesus' name, amen.